from Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank So. Every two years, Cambridge residents and citizens gear up for a month-long race for Cambridge City Council. This fall, some two dozen candidates are in the running, and they've joined a series of conversations and forums around town to get their message out to Cambridge residents and voters. Two of them happened last week, and in the first episode of News Talk for the 2023-2024 to academic year, two of our reporters join us to talk through where the race stands and what all of this means for Cambridge. My name is Samuel P. Goldston, and I'm the Cambridge City Government Reporter. My name is Julian J. Giordano, and I'm the Cambridge Elections Reporter. Thank you so much, Sammy and Julian, for joining us. So I wonder then if you could start by giving us a lay of the land of the elections this year. How many candidates are running in Cambridge? We have 24 candidates running for only nine seats on the city council. Six of them are incumbents, but 18 of them are challengers. At the two forums that we had last week, 16 candidates showed up to each. Why do the elections for city council in Cambridge matter in the first place? So every week, the council meets and discusses a variety of issues, whether that's housing, environment, schools, pretty much everything that affects Canterburyans' local life and their kids, their families. We always have a pretty robust public comment section in those hearings, so people are clearly engaged with their government. And that's really why these elections matter, because people are choosing who's going to represent them in their government for the next two years. Some of the issues that councillors weigh in on are affordable housing, transportation, our schools, and they make some pretty pivotal decisions. Thank you so much. So... Election season is in full swing, you could say. Candidates are campaigning, are putting their word out there, and a huge part of that is attending these forums and events. Two of them happened last week. I'm curious if we could start with the one on Sunday. What was the premise of that conversation, and what were the topics that were on the table? Yeah, so there wasn't really a particular issue on the table the way that there was for the Tuesday event, but on Sunday they discussed a variety of issues. They talked about the Building Energy Use Disclosure Ordinance, BUDO, which is a mouthful, but it's basically a law that was passed in 2014 that requires reporting of emissions of certain property owners, as well as, as recently amended, a reduction of emissions over the next few decades. So there's a lot of discussion over whether certain entities should be exempt from that, um, if so, which ones. There was also discussion of the tree canopy, there was discussion of affordable housing, sort of a whole host of classic urban issues. Sounds like then that this was an opportunity for candidates to speak to a variety of issues uh, alongside people who are running against them. I'm curious if over the course of that event, uh, there were particular remarks or positions that stood out. I think the major note of the forum was that the incumbent candidates have a much better view of Budo than the challengers, whereas the challengers were overwhelmingly skeptical of Budo and argued for exemptions for churches, for nonprofits, saying that it was an undue burden on organizations that were not focused on making money that should not have to reduce their emissions to such an extent. Mm, for sure. And, and Budo being that ordinance that says essentially not only are we going to be reporting measurements of our emissions, but also seeking to lower them in the coming years. Exactly. There's a timetable over the next few decades of eventually reducing to net zero emissions. Thank you so much. So we also then had another event on Tuesday. It was a sort of one-two punch within the span of three days. I'm curious, what was on the table for Tuesday? The Tuesday Forum was hosted by a nonprofit group that's very active in Cambridge called A Better Cambridge, and they focus on housing. And during that forum, they asked candidates to talk about their policies on three separate issues. One was exclusionary zoning, the second was affordable housing, and the third was tenant protections. I'm curious if you saw any trends or conclusions that emerged on Tuesday. So the main topic of interest at the Tuesday Forum was the affordable housing overlay. 
This is an ordinance that was passed a couple of years ago, and that makes it cheaper and easier for developers to build affordable housing units in Cambridge. The reason that this is so contentious is that councillors are currently working to pass an amendment through the City Council that would allow developers to build taller affordable housing buildings in certain areas of the city up to 15 stories. And this has been a point of division among council members and among candidates. We see the strongest divide along incumbent versus challenger lines. A lot of the incumbents support this amendment, but at the forum, we heard a lot of challengers saying that they do not fully support it and that they'd like to see height limits remain where they currently are. It's important to note, though, that we also had an incumbent who is not a big fan of the AHO. That's Patty Nolan. She made very clear that she does not think it has accomplished anything that it was supposed to and that it's probably not really a necessary piece of legislation. Whereas on the other hand, you have an opponent like Robert Winters, who's a challenger, who's made very clear that he's opposed to it for his own reasons. He doesn't want density, and he's not particularly worried about the housing issue that it's trying to address. To the average Cambridge resident who is thinking about affordable housing and how it will impact their city, I'm curious what the affordable housing overlay means. What does it mean that in certain areas of the city we can build taller affordable housing buildings up to 15 stories if it were to pass? Yeah, for sure. So the best place to start with this is to look at the housing situation in Cambridge. We have an affordable housing wait list that has over 20,000 people on it. It's a huge number. It's a number that won't be able to be met anytime soon with the current rate of affordable housing construction let alone affordable housing construction under the affordable housing overlay. The goal of these amendments is to try to create more affordable housing units. And one of the only ways to do that at a, at a larger level is to build taller buildings. Now, much of the city of Cambridge is zoned to allow only for single-family homes or for four-story buildings or, or, or less than 60 feet. There's all of these specific elements of the zoning code that restrict the height of buildings in many parts of the city. But the city's current zoning ordinance already allows for developers to build taller buildings in certain sections of the city, including in some of the major squares, like Harvard Square and Central Square, and along major corridors, like Massachusetts Avenue. What the affordable housing overlay seeks to do is allow for even taller buildings to be built in these areas, in some cases up to 15 stories tall. This will allow Cambridge to meet the demands for affordable housing, according to its proponents. At the Tuesday Forum, candidates also talked about rent control and exclusionary zoning. What's really interesting about rent control and rent stabilization, as it's been referred to at these meetings, is that it was banned across Massachusetts in 1994, and there's currently a movement in several cities, including Somerville, to try to bring it back, which would require a state-level action that returns control to cities. There's currently work from our state representative, Mike Connolly, to introduce it as a ballot question in 2024. And several of the candidates at the forum um, on Tuesday night mentioned that they would be interested in supporting that. Candidates also came out overwhelmingly against exclusionary zoning practices that, um, according to Vernon Walker, one of the candidates running as a challenger, hurt black and brown folks in the community the most. One thing that might be of interest, not necessarily to all Cambridge residents, but certainly to Harvard students on campus, is that there is a Harvard connection to this race by way of the candidates that are running. I'm curious if we could talk a little bit about that. What are the Harvard connections here? Sure. So the most notable Harvard connection is Aya Alzubi from the class of 2023. She threw her hat into the ring a little over a month after graduating from the college, and she's been living in Cambridge off campus for the past year. We also have one other Harvard alum and two current Harvard affiliates running for city council. The Harvard alumna is Patricia Nolan, class of 1980, who has been serving her second term on the council right now. And the two Harvard affiliates are Peter Shu, an instructor at the medical school, 
and Robert Winters, an instructor at the Harvard Extension School and Summer School, who's been involved in Cambridge government since the 1980s. As election season continues to roll into the fall and into the coming months, I'm curious what Cambridge residents can be looking forward to when it comes to this race. I think one elephant in the room that has certainly not been addressed yet is policing. Um, We've got Sumbul Siddiqui, the current mayor. She's running for re-election. At the beginning of this year, she faced severe blowback in the aftermath of the killing of Sayed Faisal by CPD, the Cambridge Police Department. And that has not yet been addressed in the race. So I think policing is definitely an issue that Canterburyans can look to hearing about further on in the race. Another issue that hasn't been discussed at too much length at the recent forums, but we can expect to be a big issue going forward, is transportation in Cambridge, particularly when it comes to biking and the creation of bike lanes and closures of, for example, Memorial Drive on the weekends for cyclists and pedestrians. We can also look forward to candidates talking about affordability of buses and traffic in Cambridge. These are all issues that have come up at the council in the past year and are issues that will be sure to separate candidates in the race. Thank you so much, Sammy and Julian, for joining us to talk about the forums as we continue to follow these elections. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Frank. At the end of the academic year, one of Harvard's longest-serving deans is stepping down following a series of public controversies. His name is Douglas W. Almendorf, outgoing dean of the Harvard Kennedy School. In the past calendar year, hundreds of students have called for his resignation, even as some students and faculty continue to praise his leadership. As he prepares to leave, the Kennedy School and its students are left to wonder just what's coming next. Two of our reporters join us now to talk through how all of this went down and where it's all going. My name is Asher J. Montgomery. I cover the Harvard Kennedy School and the Institute of Politics for the Crimson. My name is Thomas J. Mette, and I cover the Kennedy School and the IOP with Asher. Thank you so much, Asher and Thomas. So I'm curious if you could talk us through Dean Elmendorf's resignation in the first place. How did the news break, and how did students respond? The university president, Claudine Gay, announced on September 7th to the HKS or the Kennedy School affiliates that the dean would be stepping down. To my knowledge, like to all of the students that I talked to, this was a surprise to them. Um, To a couple of faculty as well, some of them didn't say if this surprised them or not, but it didn't not surprise anyone. Yeah, Dean Elmendorf had quite a rough semester in the spring. He faced calls for his resignation from students twice. The first time was about in early winter when he allegedly vetoed Kenneth Roth's fellowship to the Belfer Center over his views towards Israel. He was quite critical over their human rights violations. And there were allegations from Ken Roth to the dean that he had a pro-Israel tilt in the dean's office, which led to his fellowship being vetoed. So the dean ended up reversing his decision around Ken Roth. But there were still well over 300 signatures from students calling for Elmendorf's resignation. Ken Roth left for Princeton after their incident. In February this year, Elmendorf actually ended a research project that was led by misinformation expert Joan Donovan at the Shorenstein Center. And after this, Donovan departed the Kennedy School um, at the end of August to start a tenure track position at Boston University. So, you know, when the news broke that he had ended this project and sort of like pushed her out of the Kennedy School, this also led to quite a few students and faculty to to call for his resignation as well, as this was like the second time within just a few months that 
that he had done something controversial. He also drove away the daughter of President John F. Kennedy. She was chair of the Senior Advisory Committee at the Institute of Politics, and she felt that Elmendorf kind of overstepped and overreached with his roles, exercising too much control over the IOP, and that kind of led to her departure. That was back in about 2020. So that feels like a huge flurry of events that's come, you know, in the past few years that have plagued Elmendorf's tenure. How long has Elmendorf been the dean of the Harvard Kennedy School in the first place? He's been dean for eight years, which is quite a long reign for a dean. He's one of the longest serving deans at the university right now. For sure. So how did students feel about the changes and the activities that Elmendorf had made as dean? You know, they're kind of uh, mixed especially coming from the students. I talked to a couple of international students who felt his welcome to the Kennedy School for them was really inspiring. Um, Talking about his speech during orientation was very uplifting. The Kennedy School has become more open to international students over the last eight years that Dean Elmendorf has been dean. They were very happy to see that the MPP program is now STEM certified, which is very helpful to international students. So that's one side of it. Another side, though, is the feeling that students didn't have much of a choice in decisions that were made at the Kennedy School. The Ken Roth decision was particularly upsetting to a lot of students that had heard about it, um, even new students to the Kennedy School, but especially those going in to their second year. I, I did talk to some students, especially alum who just recently graduated. They felt very happy that the dean was deciding to step down. Mm, for sure. So his exit at the end of the academic year then means that Harvard Kennedy School has to look itself for new leadership. I'm curious what we can look to in the coming months as the dean search goes underway. The university president, Claudine Gay, we can see like with her most recent appointments that she looks to those that she already knows. She doesn't go too far outside of the Harvard community. To me, that means we can expect someone who is very familiar with the Kennedy School already, not someone who will need to be too heavily trained in what the culture of the Kennedy School looks like. But these searches, they, they take time. They take a lot of thought. I don't see... Yay as being someone who is rushing these decisions, especially given that they have till the end of the year until Dean Elmendorf steps down. It's not something that needs to be sudden. There's no interim dean. That's what I expect. And Elmendorf himself is also engaged in a number of activities following the announcement of his stepping down. I'm curious where he's going next and what he's been up to since news broke. So most recently, Elmendorf was at the JFK Jr. Forum under the Institute of Politics. So he introduced the governor of Utah, and he actually discussed a lot about candid conversations and finding like that ability to disagree in our public discourse. And that's something interesting. We talked to Dean Elmendorf last spring, and he said that candid conversations within the Kennedy School is something he can't wave a magic wand to happen. So I think as he's like going into this year, speaking about the governor and like kicking off that event is kind of showing he's trying to get this year off to a better start than he had last semester and maybe turning the page on the Ken Roth controversy, the Joan Donovan controversy, and looking to build more of a space at the Kennedy School that is for like open political discourse. This is definitely a time he's going to try to cement his legacy with positive accomplishments he had within the Kennedy School. 
So he established the first Office of Diversity and Inclusion at the Kennedy School, which was very well received. And he's also garnered a lot of praise when Asher was talking to professors about his handling of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And even Harvard President Claudine Gay has said during particularly difficult political times, especially with the rise of extremism on like the political landscape and political polarization, Dean Elmendorf has kind of made the Kennedy School a safe space. And they're still that beacon for public policy. People still come to the Harvard Kennedy School because it's regarded as one of the best. And I think going forward, Dean Elmendorf is really going to want to build off of those positives as he enters his last year. As Elmendorf prepares for his departure at the end of the school year, he's thinking about not just how he approaches his legacy building, but also where he's moving next. I'm curious what we can expect out of him. Well, Dean Elmendorf had a whole nother life in a professional sense before joining the Harvard Kennedy School. He was a dedicated public servant and esteemed economist. He was director of the Congressional Budgetary Office and a top economist at the Federal Reserve. He's planning to stay at the Kennedy School and continue teaching. He's wrote out in his statement when he announced he was stepping down that he's looking forward to teaching about economic policy and engaging with students. This is still an opportunity for students at the Kennedy School and the faculty to have one of the top economic minds in the country still working with students. Thank you so much, Asher and Thomas, for joining us to dissect Elmendorf's departure as Kennedy School Dean and what's next. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Frank. Newstalk is hosted by Frank S. Zoe. Our producers are Gina H. Cho and Frank S. Zoe. Our multimedia chairs are Joey Huang and Julian J. Giordano. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Music in this episode comes from freesound.org. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. <laughs>